another edition of Campus Beat. In this segment, we're chatting with Jackie Brown, recipient of the 2020 Queen's University Distinguished Service Award, an award recognizing the exemplary service to Queen's University offered to staff and faculty who have made contributions over an extended period of time. Jackie, a long-serving program assistant in the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering, joins us here today to chat about her role at Queen's and the contributions she has long made. Welcome, Jackie. Well, welcome to you too. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, say how I, I'm still, it doesn't seem real that I was, I received this honor. It, it really does not. And I know it didn't come um, really from what I'm doing. It came from all the people that have always been there for me. And um, I, I am so I am so honored and it feels actually just like yesterday that I got that call. I was working from home and I, I picked up my cell phone and I thought, I don't get too many calls. And it was um, a gentleman and saying, um, yes, I, I want to tell you that you've, you've got the uh, Dis Distinguished Service Award. I go, pardon me? <laughs> so I know there are many, many people behind this. And um, Queen's is wonderful. It's always been wonderful and I am going to miss it deeply. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jackie, and, and the work that you do over in MechEng, otherwise known as the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering. Well, I, um, I was fresh out of high school at 17, and um, I had a neighbor, and uh, he used to work in career services at the time, and uh, he says, I believe there's a job opening coming up in the engineering department and um, he said I think it's in mining engineering so anyhow um, he managed to connect me with I think at the time it was Pat Eaton human resources was very small at the time and um, anyhow I went in and I had the interview but alas the um, the position had been filled so me being the bowl of jelly I am, and I cry easily, I cried all the way home. I lived in Sydney oh. at the time. Oh, so no. anyhow, anyhow, then I received a call the next day that there was a job in mechanical and materials engineering. And it was Dr. Ray Corneal that interviewed me. And from, from then on, I have been supported and encouraged to, to where I am today. And uh, I love the students. I didn't always work directly with the students. You start as a, you know, a stenographer and then you go to a typist and then you go to a junior typist. So, but I've probably seen upwards of four or 5,000 students leave the program with their degree, which is so fulfilling. And oh, wow. uh, for some, it does not come easy. Um, and they're the ones you get to know a little bit more than others. And uh, it's the most rewarding job I think anybody could possibly ever want. It really is. Wonderful. So you've talked about how you have been uh, what, so well supported uh, oh, through your goodness. long career. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the work you do supporting uh, students themselves. 
Well, of course, uh, students come in many, many forms. Some are very um, strong academically, but they're not strong in other ways. So we, we need to support them in, in many ways. Some of them just want to come in and basically sit in your office in the olden days, <laughs> not so much in the new days because we're doing everything by Zoom. But um, some of them just need, they, they call me Mother Mech. And I think it's kind of funny because when I first started, I was younger than they were. And now, of <laughs> course, with my hair, <laughs> I could be their grandmother. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's been a funny journey. But um, I've always, I guess, been able to relate with students. They've been able to relate with me. I've probably done a little bit more for them than I should have at times, but I don't like myself if I'm trying to find something out. I don't like being referred to this person and then this person. I, I try for every student to get to the root of what their issue is so we can try to resolve it. And in, in this program, we kind of hold their hand in second and third year, but in fourth year, they're wide open to choose their courses, but they're not used to doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's also the year for a large number of students that they've got to make sure that they're in everything to get their degree. Um, so you get to know certain students that way. They say, you know, uh, what's this course like? Am I in the right amount of courses? Am I not? Students go and exchange. They're the, the students you get to know. Students transfer in. Um, they, they just like to have that assurance that there's somebody there to help them through all of this, this stuff. And I guess that's, that's who I am. Now, I'm very fortunate now. I have a wonderful person working with me who's going to take over for me because I'm retiring um, the end of this year. Mm -hmm. um, and she's wonderful. And we're very blessed. We've been able to work together for about a year and a half. So quite often we'll share Zoom meetings and, and stuff like that. And there's also another side of students, and that's the parents. We are limited to what we can um, say to parents. But parents at times are very concerned about their, their children, obviously. And um, I don't know, I've, I've always had a way, I guess, of being able to deal with parents because I'm a parent myself. And um, yeah, I don't know, that's, that's what I've done. And I've done it for 43 and a half years. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so it's been pretty you, crazy, really. And just, <laughs> what a wonderful ride you've certainly had. Oh, I think, it's been too. amazing. I'm so blessed. I really am. <laughs> so let's learn a little bit more from you, if we can, too, about your interests in uh, campus safety and, and continuing training, too. I'd like yeah. to learn a little bit more from you about the contributions you've made in these areas that have had such a positive impact for students uh, fellow staff as well as faculty. Yeah, well, we have what's called um, the safety, um, I guess it's a safety board that goes across campus and I'm part of the uh, Faculty of Engineering uh, Safety Board. So we meet usually, I think about four times a year. And I think I've been doing this, I, I can't even remember how long I've been doing it, but um, it was originally something that 
my boss at the time said, why don't you do this? It'll get you out of the office in a different atmosphere, get you, you know, not sitting at your desk all the time. So I agreed. And it's been a wonderful thing. So there's pretty intense training at, at the beginning. Um, but just yesterday, actually, I had um, a safety inspection. And I'm a person that I was born in England. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I always wear dresses. So when I have a safety inspection, I can't wear a dress. I have to put pants on and I have to put my work boots on and I have to put my glasses on. So um, it's it's a wonderful way to go around, see different parts of the university, especially when you're doing it, doing it during term, because you get to see students working in their labs. You get to see uh, faculty in their offices. And what you're doing is you're just usually we have three or four of us and it's amazing what what different people focus on um you know having four sets of eyes you can go into a workplace and it can look it can look perfectly safe and then when you get looking around things there are just tiny little things that could really turn out to be a bad thing if it's not caught and um students the hard part i think about um, the student safety is that the turnaround is very very difficult because you get these student teams and you get the fourth year students that have been doing it for a long time and and they're very cautious of uh, safety and how it should be done but then they leave and and it's it's like a big turnaround and so we are there to just try to make sure that the university is a safe place for everyone. So it's something that I've, I've really enjoyed actually. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a nice group of people. So, yeah. Wow. wow. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. No today. problem. Well, thank you for giving me the time. <laughs> yes. So folks, we've been talking with Jackie Brown from Mechanical and Materials Engineering all about her many years and many contributions to the university community. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jackie. Congratulations on your Distinguished Service Award and also upon your retirement later this year. Thank you very, very much. But Queens will always be in my blood. <laughs> always. <laughs> Thank you. your home country in Africa or do you want to learn more about the beautiful continent of Africa? If your answer is yes, then this is your show, Sounds of Africa. From high life to Afrobeats to Afro soul to jazz to sukus to house music and many more, Sounds of Africa has you covered. This show comes to you this and every Friday at 8 p.m. on CFRC Radio 101.9 FM. Join me, Kwame, as I take you on a safari to the beautiful warm continent of Africa. Looking for a way to get involved in your Queens or Kingston community? Look no further because CFRC 101.9 FM is always welcoming new volunteers. 
We have so many roles here that include live and pre-recorded music and spoken word programming, DJing special events, podcasting production and recording, news content development, music library support, social event planning, and even more. If you like what you've heard, be sure to visit our website at cfrc.ca slash volunteer to fill out a form now to get started. Welcome back to Campus Beat. In this segment, we are chatting with 2020 Distinguished Service Award winner Jan Allen, well known for her work as the director of the Agnes Etherington Arts Centre. Welcome back to CFRC, Jan, and congratulations on your award. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your work as both a curator and arts leader. Um, I was at the Agnes Etherington Arts Center. My career was really centered there, uh, really centered uh, at Queens and uh, and the Agnes that was my home for 27 years and uh, practically was my home. I, I was very dedicated to my job because I loved it. Um, I loved working with artists. I loved making a culture buzz and uh, also working with the academic community, both the students and, and faculty staff. Um, it was a really fantastic and uh, inspiring work environment for me. So um, very productive. I was a curator um, most of my um, career there, uh, working with contemporary art in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and then I became more and more interested in um, more uh, leadership and administrative roles that could sort of fire things on a different level. Uh, all the while, I uh, think thinking about it and seeing it as a creative process. <laughs> Fantastic. So tell us about some of the work you've done promoting collaborative curatorial and research work when you were with the Agnes. That's a pretty big question, a multidimensional one. Um, I really found it fruitful to uh, cultivate partnerships, not only um, locally um, with arts and non-arts groups, but nationally and internationally as well, um, just for the way that that fed, I guess, and inspired um, better work and uh, new ideas, um, really fresh perspectives on a sort of an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. Really exciting to see that permeate the in, entire culture um, within uh, the art center, the Agnes, um, as as we brought on new staff, um, younger generations were finding that a very natural way to work um, and to really tap into the research energy of the university environment as well. Um, mm -hmm. And to, you know, keep those uh, bigger networks percolating on a, a sort of ongoing basis. So we, we also were quite inventive with that in partnerships, for instance, with um, the uh, Snow Lab in uh, doing physics research. We worked with them twice, I guess, during my tenure of uh, really exciting and timely projects of, you know, high level scientific research, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be your first thought for an arts mm -hmm. center, but in fact was extremely productive and, and fascinating, I think, on, on all sides. Um, so we could develop partnerships like that that would um, not only bring in new communities and speak to them, but 
um, provoke curiosity, I think, um, for the wider public, like just how does, what's going on there? And mm -hmm. so we were continually, I think, able to kind of feed that uh, energy for our audiences, which was really uh, gratifying to do. And also an adventure and a constant learning process for myself and um, the people around uh, the gallery. So it was really gratifying that way. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, of what exhibitions and publications and acquisitions made during your time as the director at the Agnes are you most proud? That's a that's a really tough question. I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> oh no, the I hot mean, button, the hot button question. It really is. It's uh, it's also a little sensitive because, as you know, the Agnes has such a diverse collection and in very very different areas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, there were really spectacular additions to the European collection with the generosity of um, the Bader family um, and uh, really amazing and almost shockingly great um, works by Rembrandt and uh, his, his community. So that's like has to be really close to the top of the list. Um, but there are many also stellar acquisitions um, in Canadian historical art, um, built, starting to build and evolve our thinking around the African collection was important. The indigenous um, collections expanded um, quite dramatically and shifted focus in new ways, reflecting changes in society. Mm -hmm. um, I, my, one of my personal uh, favorites was around electronic arts, um, which uh, uh, interactive electronic arts I have a deep passion for. And uh, so those were some of my, I guess, really most exciting for me projects to work on. Um, and I think also, again, connected with different communities in new ways. So um, Machine Life, which was based on the work of electronic arts pioneer Norman White and his circle, I think made a huge impact. Um, Sorting Demons, which again was a, a group show of electronic arts that really talked about surveillance and the way that changes how we see ourselves as individuals. And that was a very forward-looking show, which it astonishes me from day to day, how um, some of the issues that we were touching on then, you know, 10 years ago, are now still evolving and, and becoming more and more apparent as we understand how the impacts of um, surveillance on our society, the information society. So um, those for me, intellectually and socially, politically, uh, I think were most sort of uh, exciting and memorable. Um, in terms of what the gallery achieved, the founding of, I think, the um, David McTavish Art Study Room, the creation of that facility within our uh, envelope um, was a really signal step. Um, it seemed to come together really beautifully with the support of faculty and, and funders. But um, the difference that started to make in the way we worked um, in how we thought of what, how, what our potential was for connecting with um, curriculum, um, with the work of faculty, with real uh, and flexible responsiveness to people's curiosity and needs um, was like a very exciting kind of turning point that opened a lot of other doors. So you see that as a, it's not a big flashy thing, although I think it was significant, but it made a lot of other things possible and it sort of set a new a new tone um which is really really exciting for me and um you know something i'm very proud of and i'm happy to see in the new uh, agnes reimagined project that's coming up 
now for a rebuild of the Agnes, that um, those spaces for student involvement, engagement, and learning are, are being expanded. And so that the success of that particular initiative of an art study facility um, is now being seen as actually at the heart of the new Agnes Reimagined. So that's um, really great that that door could be opened in that moment and has, has, has opened a whole lot of possibilities for the future of the gallery. Wonderful. And now on to the Distinguished Service Award itself. What were your thoughts when you first learned you were a recipient? Uh, well, I was surprised. <laughs> was, I, I hadn't been aware of the nomination and I was completely delighted. And of course, I got the phone call during COVID and the early part of the lockdown. And it was like, really? It seemed surreal. <laughs> and uh, of course, we haven't really been able to have in-person in celebrations. So it's, it's remained a little bit surreal, uh, but I was extremely gratified and grateful. I was you know, deeply honored um, to, be, to have my work recognized in this way. And also as a member of staff, I know there's so many talented people at Queens um, doing really remarkable work. So I, I just felt um, incredibly honored. Thank you so much, Jan. Folks, we've been chatting with Jan Allen, Director Emerita of the Agnes Etherington Art Center here at Queen's University and recipient of a 2020 Distinguished Service Award. Thank you for joining us, Jan, and once again, a hearty congratulations. Thank you so much. Halfway between Toronto and Montreal, you'll find a city with a rich history as the first capital of Canada and as a university town. But there's something else happening under the surface. For decades, Kingston has been a musical hub in the province. Artists like the Tragically Hip, the Glorious Sons and Sarah Harmer cut their teeth on stage and in the studio here. And every year, the city buzzes with new local music. But why here? Kingston Live explores that question with the artists, venues, and organizers that shape the city's musical landscape. Listen to Kingston Live and Kingston Live On Air right here on CFRC 101.9 FM and discover what makes Kingston the first capital of Canadian music. Thank you, Kingston! Out of sight, out of mind, not when it comes to what you flush down the toilet or pour down the drain. It's going to come back to haunt your home in the form of a messy and costly sewer backup. The biggest issue Utilities Kingston employees see is when people flush wipes or pour cooking grease down the drain. This garbage goes in the trash, not the toilet, even if the packaging claims otherwise. Know what to flush to protect your home and health. Visit utilitieskingston.com slash know what to flush. back to the special edition of Campus Beat. In this segment, I'm chatting with Lucinda Walls, Public Services Librarian at the Queen's University Library and recipient of a 2021 Distinguished Service Award. Welcome to Campus Beat, Lucinda. Thank you, Dinah. 
So tell us about your role at the Queen's University Library and tell us a little bit more about what public service librarians do. Well, I may be one of the last who actually has that title of public services librarian. Uh, many of them are now research and instruction librarians, and I do the same work, but uh, I'm of an older school, and they have long kept my, my title as it is. And I, I think it's still very apt because it really was what I aimed to do, to, to do public services and to do it well or as best as I could. So um, what I, I've done at Queen's has has varied over the years. Uh, it's a 30-year career as of this past August, 40-year uh, career in total. I was elsewhere at the National Library of Canada before coming to Queen's. But I started in the Bracken Health Sciences Library, and I was mm -hmm. uh, in the first year, actually, where they integrated the uh, information literacy program into the medical curriculum. So although I started as a, as a uh, history of medicine cataloger, I was rather soon... Uh, co-opted into the, into the public services program, or at least doing the information literacy classes. And, uh, and then not long after, I, really my title became a public services librarian. So uh, I'm very thrilled to have done this for 30 years at Queen's. Um, my clientele, if you like, has changed over the years from being health sciences related to uh, a move in 2000 into the newly renovated Jordan Library Special Collections and Music Library. And there I was public services librarian for art and music and special collections. And that lasted mm -hmm. for 16 years, I guess. And then the last five or six, I came to Stauffer and was public services librarian for art and drama and music. Wow. Okay. So let's uh, tease out a little bit more on what the day-to-day -day work actually looks like to support students and faculty in the arts on, on the day-to-day -day basis. What do you do? Well... <laughs> The essential part would be reference. I would be the contact person for anybody in a particular subject of discipline that I am that I am dealing with. And they students and faculty know that they can come to me for research help. Uh, but mm -hmm. that also uh, extends to getting to know their areas of what they teach and what they research in and doing collection development building for, for those areas. And that has certainly changed over the years. It's become much more interdisciplinary. Um, the other things we do as, as part of our outreach and our teaching and instruction is, is to create uh, websites, library guides that, can, that students can go to independently or that we can use as teaching tools when we're invited into, into professors' classrooms to teach particular, uh, particular sessions on research skills, information literacy, et cetera, for, for their students. Um, well, what else do we do? <laughs> we, um, we are members of committees, of course, could be appointments committees, it could be committees dealing with equity and diversity inclusion, uh, it can be any anything else on campus that, uh, that we can, that has our interest or that that is related to the areas in which we, in which we um, do our reference and uh, collection development. So I guess those are the essential things, um, reference the teaching and, and, um, and collection development, and of course, a lot of web, web related work as well. Amazing. So one thing I'm kind of curious about as somebody who uh, had previously done a doctorate myself and, uh, and at a time when I was able to uh, do my research largely through a fair amount of searching through online databases, et cetera, et cetera. But 
But when I was a child, I still remembered the card catalogs way back in the day. I'd be interested to learn more from you, from somebody who has been working in this field for quite some time. Uh, what, uh, What challenges uh, did perhaps the old system of card catalogs place? I can't imagine doing a doctorate no. <laughs> just searching through a card catalog. But what challenges uh, have uh, have been encountered as as the uh, access to information has so greatly expanded over the many years that we've now been online? Well, it it definitely has expanded, and that in itself, the, now the plethora of information is is mind boggling, and really students and faculty need some help navigating um, all of these particular databases that relate to their subject areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much of what has transpired over the past few years is even a move from subject database searching and online catalog, the library catalog searching, to a kind of one portal system where you, with searching your terms, your keywords, whatever your, your topic is, you're you're being faced with a water hose of results of information that is 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 not just um, uh, you know the nice succinct things that are on the library shelves, but that can be journal articles electronically or any other number of formats of, of um, information, and all of these things are coming back at in one in one search result and then have to be filtered down and deciphered a little bit better or zeroed in with you know, more precise terms or ways of searching it to get it down to a more meaningful result. So it, in fact, it's, it's almost more mind boggling than ever. <laughs> and I don't mm-hmm. think that, that uh, the role of librarians is soon to be passed. I really think there's always gonna be that need for someone to help um, the navigation of all of these incredible resources that we are now, um, we have at our availability. Okay. So, and as as an extension of that, I understand that information literacy is something that you are uh, extremely passionate about. Can you explain a little bit more what information literacy is, why it's important, and how you educate university community members about information literacy? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a a fancy term, I suppose, for research skills, you know, for, for teaching research skills. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's, I was certainly very lucky to be at the beginning of it in the Bracken Library when, when it was first introduced into the medical curriculum and the rehab students and nursing students as well. And so we, we were training uh, students how to search using the available subject-related databases available to them. In that case, it was Medline. But for my art students or my music students, it's completely different databases, subject-related databases. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be anything to search from the broad to the specific. So the library catalog, of course, is, 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 is a, maybe a first start, but there are also um, resources within that, like dictionaries and, and uh, reference materials, um, encyclopedias, that, that are now, of course, mostly online, but that are a way to begin your research when you don't know much about a subject and then you want to, um, you want to get some little bit of idea about it and start to focus your ideas and to, to work towards a, a, more, um, a more specific search. And so we, we work with the students on the resources that are available in their particular disciplines and the databases that they need to search. 
Um, I guess that's that's the, the long and the short of it, but it can be very, very complex. Um, but we want to make them aware of where, you know, give them jumping off points and to give them the skills that are transferable, even from, from subject to subject. So I've taught courses that are of mixed students. It might be a, an art history course, but it might have students from different backgrounds that are wanting to take that course. And they come from psychology or sociology, but the skills that we give them in searching, they can, they can make correlations and they can, and they can transfer those skills to searching a database in psychology or sociology or some other, some other discipline. So a lot of what I liked to teach was Boolean logic, the, um, the operators of and, or, or not, to be able to combine search terms. That was a, a very, very useful skill to have and to, to help narrow or broaden your results as you needed to. Um, but of course, with our current system, it's so incredibly it's so incredibly vast now that uh, I think students are using different means by which they are filtering their searches. Okay, thank you. So what is it that you love most about your job, Lucinda? Definitely my people, <laughs> definitely my faculty and my graduate and undergraduate students and the, and the greater Queens community at large. I've been um, very blessed to work in some of the most delightful disciplines art and drama and music. And art for me comprises fine art and art history, which goes to the graduate level, uh, PhD level, and um, our wonderful Masters of Art Conservation Program, which is unique in Canada and um, <clears throat> very small body of students, but they are cultural heritage workers with a global outlook. And uh, they do very, very, um, very important work, should we say. And so those students and the, the faculties and the, and the greater community that I serve um, seem to have appreciated uh, what, I, what I can do for them. And I've been delighted over the years to realize that it's not just, it's not just those disciplines, those people in those disciplines who are interested in those subjects. I have people from different areas as well on campus and outside of Queens who come for help because who doesn't love art and drama and music? You know, they're <laughs> the finer things in life that we like to aspire to. And um, I've had chemistry profs come and look for classical guitar music because that's something they love to do in their, in their off hours. There are many, many talented people in the sciences who have come to me for music over the years. So it's, it's been a delight to meet the people that I have served. Wonderful. So tell us about your response upon receiving the Distinguished Service <laughs> Award at Queen's University. Well-deserved and, and congratulations to you. What were your thoughts you. when you first learned? Well, I really have to say, <laughs> I thought it was a telemarketer call to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it was only when Chelsea started to say such very nice things and mentioned who my nominator was that I realized this is serious. This is for real. And uh, I was, I was dumbstruck. So I, I, I didn't say much of anything because I, I simply was processing this. It's uh it's not an award that librarians can expect to, to win. And it, and it, it, what's so meaningful for me is that it comes not from my peers and not from my professional associations in librarianship, but it comes from the people that I have served and the faculty, as I said, 
graduate and undergraduate students and the greater community at Queens and even Kingston and beyond for those people who have used our resources at Queens through interlibrary loan for many years. So I, I'm just, I was delighted when it finally sunk in, yes. Well, I'm pretty sure you will have turned up in somebody's thesis or book acknowledgements <laughs> as well, too. One wow. or two. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Lucinda, for chatting with us today. And congratulations again upon your receipt of the Distinguished Service Award. Folks, we've been chatting with Lucinda Walls from the Queen's University Library about her fascinating work and career, her amazing contributions, and of course, the Distinguished Service Award for 2021, which she has received. Thank you so much, Lucinda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Diana. short set of stairs join me grim in the basement for my working knowledge of indie experimental post-punk and electronic every wednesday from 10 until 11 p.m on cfrc 101.9 fm get ready to press record Are you a student looking for someone to talk to? The Peer Support Centre offers one-on-one peer-based support to undergraduate students at Queen's University. They offer support for all issues and can connect you with resources of which you may not be aware. Peer Support Centre service is free and operates on a drop-in basis with no appointment necessary. Reach out virtually from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. daily by visiting amspeersupport.com and follow them on Instagram at Peer Support Centre to hear more about in-person operations. No problem is too big or too small. The Peer Support Centre cares about them all. Welcome back to another special edition of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen, and we're in the virtual studio today with Dr. Richard Resnick of the Faculty of Health Sciences here at Queen's University, another winner of a Distinguished Service Award. Welcome to CFRC, Richard. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much, and thank you for uh, uh, for having this chat. Thank you. Wonderful. So, Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in the Faculty of Health Sciences here at Queen's. Well, I just turned 69 two days ago, so it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm feeling uh, 69 seems to be a, a transitional year. So um, uh, I'm a surgeon by training and early on in my career uh, developed an academic focus in medical education. And uh, one thing led to another over a series of many, you know, multiple different responsibilities and uh, was recruited to uh, to Queens as the dean uh, back in 2010 and had a, a wonderful 10 years uh, working as the dean at Queens, uh, dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences. Mm-hmm. 
So amidst all of your teaching and research, how did you manage to balance all of that administrative work as, as dean while you were also doing teaching and research and now also captaining the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons ship as you, I understand you were appointed to the president of that uh, prestigious organization too. Yes, well, um, my my major focus for between 2010 and 2020 was uh, being the dean. Uh, and my own teaching and and research efforts uh, uh, were small, uh, relatively speaking, compared to the responsibilities of being the dean. So, uh, you know, I had the good luck, good fortune of being able to focus the vast majority of my attention on on the faculty of health sciences administratively uh, for those ten years, and I wasn't doing any further clinical practice for those ten years. So it gave me, you know, ample time to devote. Uh, currently, I'm uh, still on sabbatical, actually, for another month, and one of those sabbatical uh, duties that I've taken on has been the presidency of the college, and that's, uh, uh, you know, that's a part-time responsibility about two or three days a week, and that's uh, it's an honor, and it's going great. Wonderful. Now, let's learn more about your work uh, pioneering innovative educational programming in medicine and surgery, and it's impact on training new doctors and surgeons? Well, I, I guess uh, my, focus, my focus in medical education uh, has largely been on two elements uh, over the years, or I guess maybe three. Uh, uh, one is assessment, uh, better ways to make sure our doctors uh, that we're graduating uh, either from uh, a medical school or from a postgraduate program have the skills that we think they need to perform their job. Uh, the second has been on a, a format of education called competency-based medical education that includes uh, revolutionizing assessment. Uh, and uh, I was able to take Queens through a fairly significant transition of all of its programs to this new mode of educational delivery and assessment. And, and the third area that I've been very involved with for oh, at least 25 years has been the use of simulation technologies uh, in teaching uh, both uh, medical students uh, and, in my case, surgical residents. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now let's wor- learn more, too, about the work uh, you're also doing in EDII, promoting cultural safety in healthcare, and establishing Indigenous health in postgraduate medical education. Well, I so uh, probably three long topics, uh, but let's start with um, uh, work in EDI. Uh, um, I guess my, you know, we've we've tried to promote equity, diversity, inclusion uh, in in the faculty uh, in my ten years as dean. Um, my successor uh, has really um, uh, made that a much more central part of her strategic plan. Of course, it was a part of my strategic plan, uh, but I'd say she's intensifying that work. Uh, Jane Philpott, uh, she, she was former Minister of Indigenous Affairs amongst other portfolios. So it's really, you know, uh, she has much more skills and knowledge in this area than I did. But, you know, we started and I had lots of help from uh, from from individuals in the faculty. Uh, uh, I'd say we had, a, call it an episode uh, uh, while I was dean, that really, I'd say, um, uh, accelerated our initiatives and our efforts. And that was the 
uh, recognition that black medical students had been banned from the medical school uh, from 1918 to 1965. That's a whole long story that we could do a whole podcast on. Uh, but the short of it is that I, um, along with Principal Wolf, uh, gave a public apology and then launched a, uh, a black medical students uh, commission uh, to look at elements of reconciliation as well as elements of uh, uh, proactivity uh, that we could take with regards to, uh, in this case, uh, the black medical student population. Um, that was quite, a, I guess, a, a soul-shaking event for me um, and, um, and uh, with a lot of good things about it, we were able to posthumously uh, administer a degree to the son of one of these students who was, uh, in 1918, kicked out of medical school. Um, uh, again, it's a long, long story as to why that happened, but uh, none of it was good. Uh, uh, so with switching to uh, our work in Indigenous health, uh, I would say before the TRC came out, uh, we were starting our work uh, uh, in Indigenous health education, populating elements of it in both our undergraduate and postgraduate curriculum. And we had um, uh, individuals, you know, throughout uh, Queens who were skilled uh, in Indigenous uh, Indigenous matters and Indigenous health. But the TRC, it was a clarion call to all Canadians, but it specifically mentioned medical schools and uh, challenged us or maybe even charged us uh, with the task of, uh, of uh, infusing our curricula. And, and I think we really did a good job on that. My vice dean, Leslie Flynn, uh, led that charge for the faculty. Uh, we hired uh, several Indigenous educators in the faculty uh, we um, uh, definitely infused uh, our undergraduate and postgraduate curricula um, with fundamentals of uh, um, treating p patients with cultural safety uh, and in particular uh, um, uh, f a focus on indigenous health issues. Um, and I'd say that work is still ongoing and accelerating. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. And now, last, uh, what were your thoughts when you learned that the University Council Executive Committee has recognized your exemplary service with a Distinguished Service Award? Well, first of all, I was honored and uh, and 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 really pleased. I um, uh, norm often Distinguished Service Awards go to individuals who, given a lifetime of service at Queens, uh, and in my case, it was. Uh, uh, 10 years that seemed like a very short 10 years, um, although I'm still a Queen's faculty member, so I guess it's 12 years now. Um, uh, the, you know, I guess it was a, uh, in, in, in some ways, uh, uh, quite uh, thrilling because it, it meant that many of the initiatives that I had uh, started at Queen's uh, and, and the work that we had collectively done was being recognized. So I viewed it as a an affirmation that we were on the right track uh, uh, by the university, you know, because the it, it distinguished service award to me not necessarily points to an individual, but rather, uh, particularly in my case, because I was leading a large team, uh, that the work that the team had done. Okay. 
Folks, we have been chatting with Dr. Richard Resnick of the Faculty of Health Sciences here at Queen's University and current president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, all about his uh, many years of work as well as uh, his recent receipt of the Distinguished Service Award from Queen's University. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Thank you, Diana. Much appreciated, and thanks for all of your efforts in this. Glasses, now in its 10th season of broadcasting on CFRC 101.9, is a show mainly about jazz, but also about other stuff. So if you listen, you'll hear lots of jazz from all periods in the genre's history, but also some indie, some folk, and occasionally even some top 40 hits from the past. My name is Daniel Wolf. I host the show Mondays at 2 on CFRC 101.9. Tune in then. Located in the heart of Queen's campus, Agnes Etherington Art Centre features everything from famous masterworks by Rembrandt to cutting-edge contemporary art, the rotating roster of award-winning exhibitions, and collection of over 17,000 works across all media means there is something at Agnes for everyone. Highlights of the fall season include With Open Mouths, an exhibition featuring an historic African collection alongside works by contemporary artists of the African diaspora, Other Worlds, an exhibition of commissioned work by five women Métis artists, and History is Rarely Black or White, an exhibition that looks at Agnes's historic dress collection through the lens of resource extraction and the transatlantic slave trade as it connects cotton to global supply chains. Admission is free. Visit soon and learn more at agnes.queensu.ca. Yeah.